0: Reflections on Saint Paul's Letter to the Romans by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part three. I said to myself, "Everybody's going to glare at me and think terrible things of me this week if I get into this." And um, so I better, I better call upon my my friends, the contemporary. Hebrew prophets, you know, Dylan and Leonard Cohen and others. And secondly, I better have some contemporary things. I thought, well, that's easy enough. I I, literally, I said this to myself. I said, okay, well, that's fine. I will simply, I'll get it from Time Magazine. And I'll, and my, my little discipline, hardly a discipline, you know, I won't look anywhere else. I'll look in this week's Time Magazine, that's it. And then I did, and my only pro- my only problem was trying to decide which one to use. And I and just this morning I threw out two that I was bringing from there. But so here's the first one. I'll just read it to you. Now this is for people who say, "Good gosh, Paul! Would you get off it? Come on! You got to be kidding! You got to be kidding, Paul!" Okay. Obviously, the first one will be Rwanda. Here's how it begins. The Time magazine story on Rwanda. This is this came out earlier this week was written no da- a week ago, which means or more than that maybe. So now we know the death we know the death count is about a hundred thousand. So here's how it starts. 30 minutes before dawn last Wednesday, Hutu members of the presidential guard kicked in the door of a church just east of Rwanda's capital city of Kigali. Instantly, they opened fire with semi-automatic weapons and tossed in grenades. Then, according to Belgian news reports, they set upon the Tutsi parishioners who were still alive with knives, bats, and spears. Almost 1,200 civilians were massacred, more than half of them children. As the tribal carnage entered a second week in the tiny Central African country, the streets of Kigali were the domain of marauding bands of men hacking down women and children on sight. Severed heads and limbs piled up on street corners, the smell of decay fouling the air. No matter how many bodies Red Cross workers collected, more appeared. Boys carrying hand grenades threatened passing cars while drunken soldiers at makeshift barracks terrorized civilians scurrying by. One American sheltered a fugitive opposition politician and helped him to safety, but there were too many others he could not help. I saw scenes that will haunt me for the rest of my life, he said. Bodies, piles of bodies, women and children, just piles of them. I didn't invent this. I'm just reporting. Paul is talking about the power of sin. And he's talking about how to break the grip. And there's no easy way to break the grip, no matter what. But the first thing, if Paul's itinerary on the in the letter of the Romans can be relied upon, the first thing we have to do is wake up to what is happening. And that's what Romans 1 and 2 is all about. It's a wake-up call. The second story, you see there's, could creep in here subtle racism, a kind of cultural superiority. Oh, well, you know, those Africans. Okay. So there's another story. It's about rock music. It's a rock music review. Now, this is not in Rolling Stone or some, you know, some other. I mean, even Rolling Stone, but I mean, it's not even. It's this is Time Magazine. Is what I'm telling. You. Okay, <clears throat> so to do a review of a new album by a group called Nine Inch Nails. Here's what it says: The record opens with a volley of shotgun-like reports that mutate into the techno-trash of Mister Self-Destruct on which composer-singer Trent Reasoner screams, I am the voice inside your head and I control you. The downbeat side continues on the next cut, which uses a warped reggae pulse punctuated by slamming drums and Reasoner's insinuating vocal to conjure an uneasy atmosphere of malice. And on the next cut, called Heresy, in which Reasoner sings, quote, God is dead and no one cares. If there's a hell, I'll see you there. And subsequent cuts evoke paranoia, murder, and finally suicide. The lyrics on the title cut include the lines, He couldn't believe how easy it was. He put the gun into his face. Bang. So much blood for such a tiny hole. This is Time Magazine I'm reading through. okay? And they're reviewing this CD because it's a hot seller. When are we going to realize what is going on? If Paul were here, he would say, look, folks, those are not isolated incidents. This is what happens to us. We Oh, well, there's something going on here. There's a, there's a, there's a divorce rate right here. There's a drug rate right here. There's a, there's a teen suicide rate right here. There's a certain kind of uh, musical style in here. Uh, there's, there's certain uh, political correct things happening on the university. The Rwandans are slaughtering each other. The, the savagery of, uh, of tribalism is reappearing in Europe. Uh, gee, we better send teams out to each one of these to try to figure out what's going on. Paul said, wait a minute, you don't see it. You don't see it. And uh, so there we have it. And the the, the article in this morning's New York Times, which made me decide to go ahead and do a diatribe, was an article by uh, Celia Barbour. And... I'll just have to read to you portions of. it. She's talking about how women have been deprived of their share of the, of pornography, and that as as uh, discriminated against young girls, they had to sneak into their brothers' and fathers' stash of of uh, playboys and see centerfolds of beautiful women with no clothes on. And she said, uh, we were all curious, but the infatuation didn't last. Before long, we realized that an interest in naked women wasn't exactly appropriate for a teenage girl. So we taught ourselves not to feel anything but discomfort when we saw a picture of a naked body. By the time I got up the nerve and the allowance money to buy Playgirl, it was too late. I had already forbidden myself to enjoy it a childhood deprivation she is now trying to overcome. So she says, we need to give women a pornography of their own, available to them when their curiosity begins to develop, not watered-down erotica or harlequin romances, not playgirl's polite hunks, and certainly not playboy's passive centerfold. Adolescent girls need sexy magazines that are passed along by their sisters and given as gift subscriptions by maiden aunts with nudges and winks all around. (laughs) This is in the New York Times op-ed page. This is what we need. This is what our world needs is equal opportunity pornography. I have to say, remember now, for Paul, these sexual things are symptomatic. When you get all kinds of craziness going on in the sexual world. When you get sexual hysteria, that's a symptom of the of a crisis in human relationship, and that is that is a symptom of something else lacking at the spiritual and psychological level. So Paul has simply chosen to comment on that, or to begin his his exploration into the into the grip that sin has on us uh, with sexual affairs because that's where the symptoms occur. Sexuality is like the the canary in the mine shaft. It's the first thing to go weird when underlying spiritual and psychological and social problems are occurring. All right. Now, there's a prophetic tradition which you find very powerfully in Amos and in many of the prophets where the prophet begins his harangue by talking about the perversities of the Gentile nation. And then as he does that, of course, the the Israelites who are listening to all this are just warming up to the to the sermon and right on and Amen and everything else and slowly, sometimes quickly, the thing turns around and points right at those who were who, who, who were beginning to grow smug with their easy contempt for the for the moral failures of others and Paul's letter to the Romans is somewhat in that tradition because chapter 1 is devoted the second half of chapter 1 is devoted to this quick but devastating summary of the moral and religious perversities of the gentile world and chapter 2 begins this way so, the Greek word dial means therefore, C.K. Barrett translates it, that means that, okay. so you, he's talking to the Hebrews, are without excuse, he's talking to the Jewish Christians or anybody, he's talking to the Jews, he's talking to those who regard themselves as being under the law, so you are without excuse whoever you are who sit in judgment, in judging another you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same thing. Now, commentators have gone back and forth about why does this begin with so? Because it doesn't seem like it should be that way. Uh, Some people say, well, he must be still talking to the Gentile. So, you see, but he's not because He's obviously talking to people who condemn the Gentiles. Well, then other people say, well, he used, so it was a careless use of the word. But I think something much more profound is going on here. He says, we're guilty of the same sin. The fact that our version of them may be more subtle and less glaring is hardly the issue. Since subtlety amounts to precisely... The kind of moral self-delusion that keeps one from contrition, and Paul, you know, is aiming at contrition. His conversion was accompanied by an overwhelming sense of contrition, and so he he has a pretty good feeling about contrition. <laughs> it's uh, it's something he'd like to see happen more often because it it was the entree for him to a whole new way of life. So he's not overwhelmingly preoccupied with uh, preserving or enhancing somebody's existing self-esteem. He's much more interested in saving them from the mess they're about to fall into. Okay, so it says, so you are without excuse whoever sits in judgment in judging another and i want to really get to the heart of this because i think it goes to the heart of paul's understanding of the strange perversity of the law and i would translate it this way the translation i have here which is joseph fitzmyer says so you are without excuse whoever uh, whoever you are who sit in judgment in judging another you condemn yourself since you the judge do the same thing i would i would change that slightly i would say since by judging you do the same thing By judging, you do the same thing. Now, remember the story in Daniel 13 of Susanna. Here's what happens in that story. We talked about it when we were doing an earlier series. There are two accusers of Susanna. She's innocent. Their accusation is a false accusation. Daniel comes to her rescue. And as a result, two the two false accusers are stoned to death by the community. So here's the result of this, of this emancipation that the law provides. And it's not to be sneezed at. It's a very important move from condemning and stoning an innocent victim to condemning and stoning the lying false accusers who were prepared to stone her to death. That's, that has to be reckoned as moral progress. But is it moral progress that's likely to lead us out of sinfulness? Think about it this way. In this story, the result is as following. Instead of the reluctant stoning of Susanna with her own family and friends loudly lamenting the tragedy in the background, we have two judges against whom the story strongly hints many held old grudges who are stoned by a wildly unified community thoroughly convinced of of the holiness and righteousness of its violence. Is that progress? You see what I'm saying? That is the that's the catch twenty two. In both the system of law and the system of righteous of, of smug self righteousness that comes when we look at other people's failures. I probably need to repent of that sin right here today. I've said all these terrible things about, about, you know, the music world and about what the Rwandans are doing to each other, you know. And with each comment, you know, my sense of moral self-righteousness goes up a notch, and I have to then repent of all of that. That's, that's absolutely part of the problem. So, I, so here's what Paul is pointing out. When we condemn that, simply to look at it and to catalog it is the most reassuring thing in the world. It's, it's, a, it's a form of what's called, you know what the Irish sporting green is? The Irish sporting green is the obituary page. You know, the Irish get up and read every morning who's already died because it makes them feel like they've... They, they, who, who have they outlived? Who have I outlived, you know? Well, a moral version of that is what Paul's talking about. We look around, and, we, and our own sense of righteousness is the unearned result of other people's moral catastrophes. So we're very much in the, And then when we try to unleash some sanction mechanism for r- relieving that sin, we relieve it in the way that it was relieved in Daniel 13. We do not stone the innocent one. But in choosing a, cul- a, a, a certified culprit, we're able to stone with such in, such wholehearted enthusiasm And with utter conviction that we're doing God's work, we've just stepped right back into the problem at a deeper level. And that's what Paul means when he says you can't get out of it that way. You can never get out of it that way. There was another interesting story in The New Yorker about this fellow, young fellow, Kurt Cobain, who was the rock uh, lead singer for... um, this group called Nirvana, and he killed himself. And there was an article in New Yorker which said the following. By condemning racist, sexist, and homophobes in his audiences, Cobain may have promoted the cause of politically correct language in certain high school cliques, but he did not and could not attack the deep seated prejudices smoldering beneath that language. I want to keep that term in mind deep seated prejudices smoldering beneath that language. When he declared himself, quote, gay in spirit, as he did, he made a political toy out of a fragile identity. And his disavowal of masculine culture rang false alongside a stage show that dealt in sonic aggression and equipment-smashing mayhem. Who was he kidding? Killing himself as and when he did, Cobain at least managed to deliver a final jolt to the rock world that he both loved and loathed. Well, I read that because it's one thing to condemn all these things, but to condemn them in such a way as as to perpetuate what underlies them. You see, this is part of being trapped. In other words, it won't do any good to condemn the sin in such a way as to exacerbate it. Okay. So for these and all my other sins. I am sorry. <laughs> but I want to read something to you which is which is at one level pretty opaque, but and we don't have time to eliminate all its opacity, but I think it's a tremendous insight, in, particularly when we think of certain things that are happening in the rock world in terms of nihilism. When the New Yorker says that Cobain delivered a final jolt to the rock world, he both loved and loathed. But here's what Hammerton Kelly says in his book on Paul. He, he's talking about this term that's uh, adokimos nous, the reprobate mind, and Bob translates it, the failed mind. And he says this, the failed mind is a mind enslaved. It desires not only to possess the other, but to consume or destroy. It wishes not only to imitate the other, nor merely to possess itself in the other, but to destroy the other as the place where the self is alien to itself. To destroy the other as the place where the self is alien to itself. That's what happens when when Neville looks over and sees Percival. He is moving towards, and he, he's he's moving toward. He's making the first move in an effort to seek transcendence in a horizontal way, to seek transcendence in the social milieu, and it's an idolatrous move, and it produces resentment and contempt. And finally, what Hamilton Kelly calls the desire to destroy the other as the place where the self is alien to itself. And I'm sorry to say, I think that is a tremendous commentary on the, the kind of snarling resentment that is so widespread among the young today who are stuck in this mimetic madness up to their ears with no alternative For Paul, wrath, as you know, the first mention of wrath is, he says, God is now at this moment, he uses the word, the word is which means which means the apocalypse, the unveiling, the revelation. But he says the wrath, God is revealing the wrath at this moment. He's talking about the the revelation of God's wrath is occurring right now. This is God's wrath. What we're seeing is God's wrath. But then he also talks about the day of wrath, which is in the future. And he says the day of wrath, without repentance, the day of wrath will consist of wrath and fury. Now, I, I said earlier desire... Is epithumia, inordinate desire, epithumia. The root of that word is thuo, which is sacrifice. The word wrath is thumos, which is also entangled with that. So, the, so you have these words, desire, sacrifice, and wrath are etymologically almost inseparable. And Paul introduces another word in this discussion, and that is the word fury, which is the word orde. And here's how to, and I'm interested in words, so I went to look up these things, you know. And I'll tell you what two commentators have said about this. One says the following, quote, Sumos, wrath, is more of the turbulent commotion, the boiling of the feelings, while orge is more of an abiding and settled habit of mind. Orge is a wrathful habit of mind. Kierkegaard says, resentment is the constituent principle of the modern age. And resentment is what happens when the happy love of admiration turns into the unhappy love of envy. You see? So, orge, wrath is when it's expressed outwardly, emotionally, physically, in violence or rage. And orge is when it eats you alive inside. And another commentator says, orge is wrath within and thumos is wrath as it overflows. That is the wrath of God. When the world is filled with that, that's God's wrath. And that article on on the suicide of Kurt Cobain used the phrase, deep-seated prejudices smoldering beneath the language that seemed to be repudiating it deep-seated prejudices that smolder beneath the language that seems to be repudiating. That's orge. You can't get out of it. Every time you tap into orge, this this fury, as a way of repudiating the, the, the world that created it in you, you exacerbate it. It's a deadly cycle. For Paul... What we're flirting with is wrath, the wrath of God. But Paul begins the journey. Uh, Joseph Fitzmaier thinks he hardly begins it, but I think he begins it more than he does. Here's what Fitzmaier says. Fitzmaier talks about Paul's idea of wrath as a, an example of what he calls protological thinking. And here's what he says about it. In such thinking, God is considered responsible for all that happens to his people and his creation, good or evil in this way the inevitable retribution of human sin is ascribed to god's wrath the theological distinction between god's absolute will and his permissive will had not yet entered the history of ideas it was to wait for the time of augustine for the beginning of the correction see the letter of james chapter 1 verse 13 and follow and i'm going to go to chapter i'm going to go to that right now I don't I think Paul already is moving in that direction. He's already beginning to see the wrath of God as something that, that God unleashes on the world as a way, by by simply stepping back and letting it run its course. The letter of James goes like this. Never when you are put to the test say God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil and he does not put anyone to the test. Everyone is put to the test by the lures and seductions of his own desire. When desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin reaches its full growth, it gives birth to death. We could very easily paraphrase that in terms of Paul's breakdown of the three stages of delivering over. God delivers us over to epithumia, inordinate desire. And then he deliver and we go blithely on our way. Then he delivers us over to our our shameless passions. Here James says uh, desire when it conceives gives birth to sin. And finally he delivers us over to the reprobate mind. The mind that is not even able to make enough distinctions to recognize the soup that it's in. We're delivered over to that which is the mind that presides over a world caught in the grip of violence. It's, I think it has to be seen, I think Paul sees it, as a world being swept up into violence that it cannot, can neither comprehend nor resist. Spasms of reciprocal violence that nobody can fully comprehend nor resist. I heard something on the radio the other day. Somebody was talking about the uh, gang warfare someplace uh and and the something and the comment was well there was this incident, you know, where ten people were sent to the hospital and so on. Uh and it was uh and so why why was it happening? The question was, what was this all about? So oh it was about uh, it was about uh, uh, turf it was turf claims, rival uh, claims of turf. And so okay, in the discussion now we go on to other things. What does that mean? Turf battle. That's a total. It, that's a way of saying, well, let's not talk about it now. What's turf battles? It's a figment of your imagination. If somebody creates that. It's purely artificial. It's an overlay. It's a rationalization for something that's utterly irrational. You know, we grab at these terms. You see, what's happening in Rwanda? Oh well, it's ancient tribal en- uh, enmity. Okay, fine. What's happening in Bosnia? Same uh, turf battle. Oh, turf battles. Good. Okay. You see, I mean, this is... So I'm being very bad talking about all this. (laughs) But I think it's... Paul is right to hit us in the face with it. What is wrath? Wrath is divine non-intervention. Welcome to the new world order. Daniel Shore on public radio this morning called it New World Ordeal. And I would say, I would and as soon as I heard it, I thought, well, I, maybe we should call it the New World Orge. The, the Greek word for fury. Welcome to the New World Orge. Now, we are in the hands of a biblical revelation. We must not despair. But if Paul has a message for us, it's this. We have followed the star through a hole in the wall where the long arm of the law can't reach. And some of us have done it for reasons of faith, and a whole lot of us have done it because that's what the gospel is doing to us. It's dragging us through that hole in the wall to a place where the long arm of the law can't reach. Okay, what's going to pass for good news here at the end? Well... Nigran says, it is a misunderstanding of the gospel to think that it is less concerned about righteousness than the law is. The direct opposite is the truth. The gospel is concerned about nothing else. That is suggested by what Jesus said to the disciples. Quote, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom you're following the star through the hole in the wall where the long arm of the law can't reach then you better have another way of achieving uprightness and maintaining it. you better walk humbly with your God that's what Paul's talking about if you're going to if you're going to live and move and have your, bring, your being outside of that Structure, you better have another way of maintaining your integrity. And for Paul that is always a relationship with God and for Paul that is faith in God through Christ. And the through Christ is important not only for reasons that have to do with one's personal religious experience, but because Christ is the crucified one. And Paul says the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ can free us from the grip of sin, we will then still be living in it but not of it. And it made me think of that passage in Matthew where Jesus says, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. What I've tried to do in all the things that we do here is I've tried to approach things, questions, text and so on, anthropologically, and to follow that lead until it leads to something of spiritual significance. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do because, as I've said before, anthropology seems like a scientific thing and an analytical thing and so on. And it doesn't seem to mesh terribly well with spirituality. But I think that one of the benefits of, of uh, Gerard's work and, and others is that is that we can make that journey. And I think, in, in a certain sense, Paul made it before us, because Paul's thinking is very anthropological. And that is to say, it, it was, he was doing this thinking 1,700 years before we invented anthropology but he was doing it on the basis of the very thing that gave rise to anthropology 1,700 years later, namely the Christian revelation and what it does to our sensibility. So he thinks anthropologically, and I said last week he was the father of ecumenism in some uh, strange way, I guess, but I, but I also think he's the father of, of anthropological thinking. But he's at the same time the father of Christian mysticism. So if we want to go from an anthropological analysis to the spiritual analysis or to spirituality, then Paul is a pretty good guide for that. So what I want to do is ask your forbearance. I have some things to say about forbearance later on. But ask your forbearance because at the beginning I want to go through Paul's anthropology a little bit. And you will recognize in it easily uh, Girard's anthropology. And you may think, well, Gill is trying to put Paul into a Girardian mold. That, I may have, I may stand accused of that. One always has to use an interpretive tool. I don't think I'm doing that, however, because Girard's anthropology is profoundly derived from the same Christian revelation that drives Paul's anthropology, so I don't think it's it's an imposition to use the Girardian analytical tools to try to open up and uh, and uh, crack open the text, as they say, break open the word of Paul's letter to the Romans. But I will try to follow Paul's basic schemata anthropological schemata, and then try to see how it leads us to Paul's spirituality. And the basic anthropological schemata of Paul is the old and new eon. What we have to notice about Paul's treatment of the old and new eon is that both these eons are controlled by powers greater than those of the individuals living within these eons the eons, by the way, are not chronologically, they they have a chronological feature, they have a sequential feature, one is old and one is new, that's a chronology already, but they also overlap. When Paul talks about being in it but not of it, he's really talking about a world in which the old eon is very much still with us, but we have glimpsed the new eon on the horizon, and that, and that glimpse has changed everything. And so we're trying to live in the, And the reality that we have glimpsed on the horizon happens to the horizon, by the way, on which we glimpsed it, as far as Paul is concerned, uh, is the horizon that has the cross uh, on it. Okay, so the old and new eons, they are controlled by powers. Uh, The power of the new eon is the power, the dunamia, the exousia, the or the dynamic, the dynamo of the gospel. And the power of the old eon is the power of wrath or the power of sin, death, and wrath. And so Paul uses these terms earlier in Romans. He uses the two terms for wrath, more or less. I talked about this last week. One of them is thymos. And the other is orge, most means wrath in the sense of an external form of wrath, or to some some, some people feel this is the way to differentiate. Wrath in an external form, social wrath, wrath that we can see that's 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 having physical effects in the world, and orge, a kind of internalized wrath, or what I think the perfect corollary to this is Kierkegaard's idea of resentment, or Nietzsche's idea of resentiment. Resentment—that this kind of seething internal wrath that hasn't yet ignited or uh, and exploded into external form—but is nevertheless right now still eating us alive. And so both of those are products, are not only products, but they are they are the salient products, the significant, the de- uh, defining products of the old aeon. They are. The cult—they are the culmination of all of the mimetic passions, to use the Tzurarian analysis. The mimetic passions being the, a certain kind of mimetic desire that that tends inevitably in a world without any transcendence to to develop into envy, resentment, rivalry, contempt, uh, and so on. The other thing Paul is concerned about, of course, in this letter very much is is this term, which is translated variously, righteousness, uprightness, just, just, justification. And so he sees the problem in the world being the problem of unrighteousness. So I want to try to tie these two things together a little bit. Beneath Paul's analysis of unrighteousness or non-uprightness or the lack of justification, is epithumia, his, the, the term for desire, one of the terms he uses for desire. It's the intense form of desire that leads to wrath and to the reign of sin and death. The first biblical glimpse we get of this desire shows how distinct it is from appetite or instinctual desire. Whatever spontaneous desire Adam and Eve may have had for the forbidden fruit, the Bible sees no reason even to mention it. It is not because sin cannot take advantage of instinctual craving. Paul says sin has the power to take advantage of the law whose purpose was to contain or restrain sin. So surely so beguiling a force could similarly take advantage of instinctual desire. But it will only do so when driven by motivations more metaphysical than physical. The only desire the Bible finds really relevant to the catastrophe of the human fall is a desire aroused by a third party, the serpent. A desire for the forbidden fruit that only arose when the gaudy and carefully limelighted desire of the serpent had its mimetic effect on Eve and in turn on Adam. Natural appetite may cause one to get stuck in the animal stage of existence or even to revert to it. But the worst it can do is to turn us into animals. It is the distinctively human form of desire, mimetic desire, that has the awesome power to turn us into diabolical murderers or children of God. Parenthetically, Paul's later discussion about sin taking advantage of the law is prefigured in the Genesis story. Inasmuch as there is only one law in the Paradisal Garden, and the serpent heads for it, to borrow a metaphor from Jeremiah, like a camel in heat. As the biblical personification of the whole mimetic problematic, the serpent knows that so mimetically predisposed are we human, that our desires are more likely to be titillated by what is forbidden than by what is freely available, even if what is freely available is infinitely more inherently valuable. As was the case in the Genesis story, the form of desire that gives rise to the eon of sin, death, and wrath, about which Paul speaks in the letter to the Romans, is what Paul calls epithumia, and what the 10th commandment in Exodus 20 calls covetousness. It is a form of desire, the psychological backdrop for which is the gnawing experience of inauthenticity or invalidity and an increasingly desperate attempt to achieve validity or authenticity in, in social competition with others, or in religious competition with others. Now, when I use the term, I'm trying to bring this, Paul's discussion, elaborate and complex discussion about justification, into into reach for us. And I'm running a little bit of a risk, because if I use this word, dikaiosyne, which is the Greek word which is translated righteousness or just, you know, justified. If, if I translate that in the, into the issue of authenticity, inauthenticity, or validity, invalidity, there's a risk that we get a little too psychological. And Paul is not a very psychological writer. He is really talking about something much more profound. He's not talking about so much. Fundamentally about one's personal experience. It's much more ontological than that. So, but, so I would just say that as a little warning. This is, I don't, I, but I think maybe for our age, we have to bring it in that way because that we can maybe get hold of it there. But we should at least have a little asterisk saying not to psychologize it too much. As it did in the false story, the inauthenticity begins the moment one loses touch with the source of authenticity. The biblical tradition is untiring in its insistence that authentic life, personal or communal, is impossible without the palpable presence of religious transcendence. The, the psalmist, the prophets, and most of all, of course, the life of Jesus demonstrate that beyond a shadow of a doubt. What gives life its true spiritual Substance. What substantiates life is a relationship to God, and that is the that is, as, as odd as it may seem to us, it seems od- odder and odder to us because we're receding. The biblical tradition, in some ways, the core of it seems to recede from us in our age. But that is the undying and and uh, untiring testimony. Of the great biblical tradition, and even to talk about you, you see, it, it, we don't even have a we don't have a form of public discourse that allows us to discuss the issue. The terms in which the issue could be discussed have been so marginalized that it, it's simply out of the realm of consideration. But I, there's there are reasons why there's some suspicion about a lot of religious talk, because uh, it can get very hot and very dangerous very quickly. Nevertheless, the biblical tradition has something to say about authenticity that we can't talk about without using some of its language, and the language we would have to use has been pretty much ruled out of public discourse. Uh, Lacking the authenticity that comes from a life of prayer, that would be closer to how seems to be for me, the mad scramble for authenticity, or for the tokens and badges of authenticity, is a quest that has precisely the opposite of its intended effects. That is, it produces an ever-deeper sense of insubstantiality. Paul's concern for justification couldn't be more relevant to the spiritual and cultural crisis of our time a crisis that consists in large part of increasingly desperate and counterproductive efforts at personal and collective self-justification. Paul's experience, it's not surprising, is very much like Augustine's because Paul had such an effect on Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Notice that the verb there is rest. Paul would notice that right away. (laughs) Because for Paul, idolatry would consist of A, seeking transcendence in the social order, but also seeking it wherever one seeks it by relying on one's own works. So, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Now, we... Paul, when Paul is critiquing the the law and the problem of of trying to achieve righteousness by works of the law he's talking about trying to achieve righteousness the way he did as a Pharisee the Mosaic law there's 613 of these things and then there are all kinds of other little prescriptions and you just try to obey them completely and fully and 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 and, and the, the plan is that by doing so you can become righteous and Paul, Found out that by doing so he became a murderer. Now we don't live in a world controlled by the 613 Mosaic laws. What we live in a world that's under whatever set of uh, of prescriptions it's under. And Paul will tell us in chapter 12 that we should not be conformed to this world. Whatever the whatever the whatever the structure is, you better not be conformed to. It. So we live in another world where all kinds of some which in which the in which the um, procedures for achieving righteousness are all changed since Paul's time. And they're not religious anymore for the most part and so on and so forth. But the problem that Paul's talking about is still very much real. And it's still very much linked to the absence of transcendence. It's the problem of trying to achieve one's righteousness, authenticity, uh, validity or whatever. We had a friend visit from out of town last week, and he was telling us about a television program. I forget what it was, but it was a primetime television program, uh, you know, network television, in which the issue was, this is a, some sitcom, I guess, the issue was orgasm. I'm telling it straight. I, this was told to me, this is secondhand, but the issue was um, whether or not the... The woman was faking an orgasm in order to make the man. By the way, they weren't married. In order to make the man feel uh, okay about himself, he said, "Well, this, this, this drove this drama for I don't know thirty or sixty minutes." Which was suddenly it came out that she was faking it, and then he thought, "Oh well, what does that say about me?" And he went into this anxiety thing about, "Well, give me another chance," and. Let me show you I can do it and and uh at the end of my friend says at the end of this program, they're walking off towards the bedroom. Now this is first of all, they're they're uh they're having a romance. They're not married, they're just having a romance. This is prime time network television. And uh the key feature that's focused on is whether or not you see the whole organ. Well, okay, now, what does that have to do with Paul? in one way nothing of course thank goodness in another way a whole lot because it's the same problem only it's being worked out in the in a in a in an arena where the desperation and the and the craziness is even grimmer you see so i mention that because when paul is talking about just trying to justify oneself by one's efforts by performing in the world. I mean, I'm sitting up here talking to you. I'm it's like putting on a low performance. Am I doing why am I doing this? You see? Paul would say. Now Paul did this kind of stuff, when he did a lot better than I did, but he Paul would say, I'm sure to said to himself, why am I doing this? Am I, am I doing this in order to achieve my legitimacy? Or am I doing it for some other reason? Well, there's always room for contrition. There's always room for contrition. But the point is, this is what, this is what Paul is talking about. It's very real. It's very much with us. It's not something that is, is easy to deal with and it's not something that's going to go away. It's part of the human condition. What Paul is trying to analyze is this business of trying to earn our validation or our authenticity by our own efforts. Unless it is abandoned, unless this effort is abandoned, the effort leads through stages of rivalry, envy, resentment, and seething contempt to wrath, thimos, and orge, Fury the wrath that dissolves the social harmony or the fury that eats away the personality from within. So I think that's in the backdrop of Paul's analysis of the old and new Eon. Now, Paul divides the old Eon into two parts the the well, the Gentile part and the Jewish part. But in another way, the part that consists of the time from Adam to Moses, and from then from the time from Moses to Christ. Adam to Moses would be before the law, from Moses to Christ would be after the law, and those would be the, those would correspond to the world of the Gentiles and the Jews. The Gentiles live apart from the law, and they had only crude instruments, by Jewish standards, they had only crude instruments for curing themselves of all of these mimetic passions, the rancor, envy, covetousness, rivalry, etc., that leads to wrath. On the other hand, they did not have Judaism's moral misgivings about using these crude instruments. It is not only easier to see the idolatry of somebody else's sacrificial contraption, but by Hebrew standards, the pagan cults were glaringly idolatrous. So it was easy for a sophisticated Jew like Paul to regard the crudity of Gentile religion and the moral squalor of Gentile irreligion as a manifestation of God's wrath. In other words, he says earlier in the letter, God has delivered them over. God's wrath takes the form of simply delivering them over to the consequences of their own idolatry and their own folly. The only alternative to that, to this kind of random wrath that c- characterizes for Paul the Gentile world or the world without, outside the law, the fallen world outside the law, is religiously sacralized wrath. As to say, controlled wrath. That's what the law brings. This is what Paul discovered on the road to Damascus. What I'm trying to do is, is decant Paul's discovery on the road to Damascus about the underlying, uh, the underlying complicity between law and sin. So it is this controlled wrath, or sacralized, choreographed wrath, that is used to periodically put an end to the spiraling epidemics of wrath. For example, this may sound, what I'm saying may make no sense, but if you think of Rwanda, Rwanda is a world in which wrath has taken over. And when people in Rwanda frantically try to get a live telephone line and frantically make appeals to Western governments or the UN to come in and physically stop the killing. There's only one way to physically stop the killing and that is with weapons. And when they're doing that, what they're appealing to is another form of wrath, authorized official wrath to end the random wrath. You see what I mean? So that's a a very vivid and Tragic example of the kind of, of what Paul's anthropology is based on. These are the choices in the old eon. This is the choice. It's a choice between a world given over to random wrath and a world cured of that random wrath with a much more economical, in the sense of how much violence is visited, much more economical and surgical form of sanctioned wrath. And that's the, that's the old eon for Paul. All of that is the old eon. So, the linchpin of the old anthropos, or the old eon, the cure for human wrath and for fury, is the wrath of God. Now, Paul's great and shocking discovery was that the sacred system was in unwitting complicity with the sinfulness that it presumed to be suppressing. It was a discovery that, as I said earlier, had the effect of destroying his entire moral and religious frame of reference and of plunging him into an anthropological problem which few people before or since have seen with anything approaching his clarity. Paul knew that the only choice the old eon had was between destructive wrath and fury of the social chaos or the righteous and religiously sanctioned wrath and fury of the sacrificial cult in the Mosaic Law. Under the dispensation of the old eon, once the latter lost its power, the former would take over and run amok. So the, the Gentiles living apart from the law are suffering this kind of low-level, systemic, constant form of wrath, which takes the, takes the form of moral squalor and occasional social chaos, and from the point of view of Jews inside the Jewish religious system, it was a sordid mess. For Jews living under the law, the law was an organized and sanctioned form of violence and coercion used to restrain the mimetic passion, to make the distinction between the righteous and the sinners clear, and to periodically clarify it still further, by punishing the sinners in ways that revived the religious and social solidarity of the righteous. That was the organized wrath way of warding off the more chaotic form of wrath. But the instrument that made the moral rectitude and social cohesion of the system of law possible was something that was structurally identical to the crucifixion. That is the great discovery Paul made I mean, we should say, Paul made so many great discoveries, and they weren't discoveries made in the mind. They were discovered, or as Buber says of, of Moses, uh, his discoveries were not made at the writing desk. Um, but one of these, surely, these lapidary insights of Paul is that sin had taken advantage of the law. And who would know that better than someone who had his sword raised in defense of the law only to hear himself called a persecutor. And therein lies his realization that sin had taken advantage of the law. The very thing the law was crushing with its might was something, was the kind of cruelty that the law was using to crush it. By, when Paul says sin took advantage of the law, I think what it means is that sin disguised itself as the enemy of sin. Or the synoptic way of talking about this is that Satan tried to cast out Satan. In fact, Satan did cast out Satan. And I think Paul's version of that, I think the synoptic notion of Satan casting out Satan and Paul's idea of sin taking advantage of the law are, are completely parallel insights. Anders Nygren says, quote, the law enabled sin to mobilize all its power. And that is to say, it enabled sin to carry out its work with moral impunity, with a sense of righteousness. Or as Robert Frost put it, the best way to hate is the worst. Okay, that's the old eon. The new eon The ordering principle of the old eon was wrath. The ordering principle of the new eon is faith in Christ or the uprightness or justification that comes from God through faith in Christ. For Paul, justification or righteousness or uprightness is a gift from God, a gracious gift from God can never be earned. Can never be earned. And that the attempt to achieve it destroys it. Paul's very strong on this. You can't have it both ways. You simply can't have it both ways. He says in Galatians, I give my assurance, once you seek to be reckoned as upright through the law, then you have separated yourself from Christ and you have fallen from grace. Fallen from grace. Grace is the only source of real, the uprightness that comes from God. And if you try to achieve it, then you will never be able to receive. As soon as you try to achieve it, you you prevent yourself from receiving it as a gracious gift from God. And so Paul is very strict about this. You can't have it both ways for Paul to be in Christ. This is very important. I think because we in the modern world, we tend to if we bother to talk about these sort of things at all, we tend to talk about have having Christ in us or having God in the God within and you know this sort of idea, which is okay. I mean there's there's warrant for that. There's plenty of precedent for that kind of thinking and it, I'm not Trying to rule it out, but we have to understand how radical Paul is. He's talking about being in Christ, not having Christ in us. It's a much more radical idea. So to be in, because the alternative is to be in sin, not to be doing naughty things. One could be do, one could be living a perfectly virtuous life and still be in sin or to be under the law. You see, one could be under the law. That's not the same thing. So for, for Paul, I would say there's being in sin, or slave to sin, you would say, or being under the law, slave to the law, or being in Christ. And only by being in, in Christ, says Paul, can one free oneself from the grip of sin, death, and wrath. The powers that control the, the old eon, both in its Gentile, pre-Mosaic order and in its the rule of law. The purpose of law, as I said for Paul, is simply to make us aware of sin so that sin will become a moral problem. He says, For through the law comes the real knowledge of sin. So law has a very important role to play in Paul's anthropology. It makes us aware. It turns sin, sort of willy-nilly sin, into a moral problem, into the experience of transgression. And that is not to be sneezed at. That is a very important uh, role to play. But you see, as the agent which turns sin into, into a moral problem... Its purpose is to make us contrite and Paul says look what has happened. It now makes us righteous It now makes us self-righteous. That's what it It doesn't make us righteous in the fundamental sense. He's talking about it makes us self righteous So it's 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 been completely perverted sin has 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 turned it upside down The role of the law for Paul is diagnostic it turns Sin that is not morally problematic into transgression that is morally problematic. In the Jewish world, the awakening of consciousness is always a moral phenomenon. That is to say, it doesn't remain moral in the limited sense, but it begins with a moral awakening. When the when the the idea that that uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's a strange statement, really. But it has to do with the very nature of coming awake in the, in the Jewish world. The Jewish world is not philosophical. It is prophetic. And its first awakening is a moral one. The great awakening that gave birth to Christianity was a moral awakening that had vastly vastly greater implications than just moral one. But it was what happened when the cock when Peter heard the cock crow, and and Paul uh, had a vision on the road to Damascus. So the, the the awakening is a moral one. the the role of the How to get off onto that? The role of the law is is to make mere sin into a into a moral problem, and to begin to deconstruct the the obfuscations that kept it from being a moral problem all along. That's the prophetic role. Uh, that's even in the law. The prophets come later than the law, but the law itself has a prophetic role. It has it, it. It it has a deconstructive role. It deconstructs the myths that keep our our sin from becoming a moral problem to us. I know this is kind of complicated, but you, you see, I think that's the Paul's insight into this. Now. In the process of diagnosing and deconstructing the obfuscations of sin, the law eventually had to deconstruct its own complicity with the sin that it was revealing. Under the scrutiny of the law, the scope of the moral problem grew until until the law itself became included in it. The culminating work of the law was to sanction the crucifixion, thereby climaxing its task of unmasking sin so decisively that it unmasked in the process its own complicity in the sin it was unmasking. It took me a little while to work that sentence out, but I tried to write a sentence instead of a chapter. Okay. That which could not cure the fundamental human problem of thymos and orge, wrath and fury, but which nevertheless mercifully held them in check by the power of sacred wrath, died on the same cross on which it unwittingly carried out its final act of unmasking. Paul says, if the powers of this world had only known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And and certainly he's talking about the Jewish law there, among other things, of course, because it was also the Roman law that... Crucified the Lord of Glory. So, in the old eon, the law served both to lessen the wrath in whose grip the old eon was caught, and to give moral and religious sanction to a particular form of that wrath. It restrained the most savage forms of wrath by tolerating sacralized forms of it. But in the process, its own moral misgivings about the process grew. Though it could only be realized in hindsight, The moral dilemma consisted of the vague realization that in fulfilling its role of restraining sin and unmasking it, the law was unmasking and gradually destroying its own system for restraining sin. And that process culminated at the cross. And that's why Paul is announcing that we have entered a new phase, folks. We have entered a new phase. The power of the law is broken. And this is like the modern world, you know. And Paul's preaching had this effect too. The power of the law is over. You are free of it. And so people say, oh, well, how nice. We can let our hair down, do anything we want. It's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Because now you do not have law to pull the fat out of the fire. You do not have this other system to save you from your own, from your own mess. So Paul says, but now, he starts in chapter 321, he says, but now, and this but now is an eschatological thing, he's talking about the crucifixion. He doesn't mention the crucifixion in Romans, but the crucifixion is always at the center of his thinking. No doubt about it. And so when he says, but now, he means after the crucifixion. But now, God's uprightness has been disclosed even though the law and prophets bear witness to it. God's uprightness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ toward all who believe, toward all without distinction. The idea of God's uprightness being disclosed is a is a very dense idea in Paul. And it will take us a little while to work our way into it. Before getting into it, let me quote the next line. All alike have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, yet all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes in Christ Jesus. Now that sounds like just a a, a, some phrase out of a creed until we unpack it, which we have to do. Nevertheless, he spent the earlier part of Romans making the point that nobody is justified. We all are justified sinners and in need of redemption and justification. And that now God has justified us in this very strange way. How could God have justified us with the cross? This is the question that we have to ask Paul. How could that be? That seems crazy. So then Paul says, and I will begin uh, uh, what I'm going to do with this next verse. Through his blood, God has presented him as a means of expiating sin for all who have faith." This, now, this sounds very sacrificial. The whole Jewish tradition had been centered around sacrificial religious practice. It was virtually impossible for Jews to think about religion without thinking about sacrifice. And that's not, not altogether unfortunate for us, because we have to this day an idea of sacrifice in the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is very vital and needs to be retained. Nevertheless, what we have to see, what we have to notice, it's very clear to us now, when we say the word sacrifice, every we almost always, in ordinary conversation, we almost always mean something like self, self-sacrifice. Somebody made a sacrifice, and so... Never, when we say that word in the contemporary world, do we mean there's a wrathful God about to visit violence on us and we better and we better placate him so that that won't happen. When you say sacrifice in the ordinary conversation, no one ever means that. When the f- word was first used, no one ever meant anything but that.